Who owns the patent on this vaccine? The people, I, I would say. There is no patent. This is... Could you patent the sun? <laughs> Those famous words from Jonas Salk still resonate with us nearly 70 years later. It was estimated that if he had patented his polio vaccine in the 1950s, he could have earned $7 billion. Instead, he chose to forego the patent. Cases of polio, which was once an epidemic in the United States, have decreased by 99% in the years since. Now, decades later, the ethics and the legality of patenting biological innovations are still debated. Some of these debates have even made it all the way to the Supreme Court. Ten years ago, the Supreme Court heard one such case, the Association for Molecular Pathology versus Myriad Genetics. Unlike other companies, rather than any specific drug or vaccine, Myriad Genetics held the patent to a gene. Today, we'll talk about the scientific basis behind this landmark case, before moving on to the legal battle surrounding it in the next two episodes. I'm Joyce Chi. This is The Battle Over You, AMP vs. Myriad, presented by KCSB News. Part 1. The Human Genome Even before people knew what a gene was, we always seemed to understand the concept of heredity. Kids look like their parents. Planting seeds from the most tolerant and high-yield plants gave us hardy, plentiful crops. Breeding a donkey and a horse resulted in a mule, which seemed to have the best of its parents' traits. From Hippocrates, who theorized that seeds were passed down from parent to offspring, to Abu Qasim Zahrawi, who observed how hemophilia ran in families, from Darwin's theory of natural selection that influenced the work of Mendel, who's called the father of genetics for his meticulous study of inheritance in pea plants, from Watson, Crick, Franklin, and Wilkins, who elucidated the structure of DNA, to Doudna, Charpentier, Zygnis, Zhang, and Church, who found that CRISPR-Cas9 proteins could be used to edit DNA. We have always known, implicitly then explicitly, not only that genes exist, but that they govern life. Nowadays, our knowledge has become much more well-defined, but an innate reverence, fascination, and awe, that has persisted through time. As we learn more about this currency of life, we learn more about ourselves and about each other, and that we're more alike than we think. The intimate understanding that we possess today of genes, and thus of each other, would be non-existent if not for the work of the Human Genome Project. Between 1985 and 1986, Robert Sinsheimer, Charles Delisi, David Smith and Renato Dolbeco all wondered, was it possible to know a person's exact genetic makeup? What about the genetic makeup of thousands or millions of people? And could we use all this information to make some sort of genetic encyclopedia, a reference database of DNA sequences? These ideas were bold and exciting, because if the project was successful, there was virtually no limit to the progress that could be made. It's no surprise then that what would become the Human Genome Project was gaining so much momentum. The reaction was largely excited and optimistic. Hi, I'm Roger Klein. I'm a physician and an attorney. I'm in, in the medical side, I'm, I'm trained as a molecular pathologist and board certified in clinical pathology, molecular genetic pathology. 
the progress that we've made has been has been astounding. And I think everybody was was just um, they were so excited at the time. My name is Uta Franke, and I'm a medical geneticist. I was on the faculty at Stanford, and now I'm retired. And I did research in medical genetics as well as medical genetics clinical work. Yeah, I thought it was a crazy idea because we already knew that the largest um, fraction of the human genome consists of repetitive sequences. And it's just what we used to think of junk DNA. And why would you want to sequence all of this? Charles DeLisi and his team at the Department of Energy faced pushback when they brought the idea to the White House and Congress. But eventually, the Human Genome Project was included in President Ronald Reagan's budget proposal before finally being approved by Congress in 1988. The collaborative effort began in 1990 between scientists all across the world, namely the United States, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, China, and Japan. It was expected to take 15 years to sequence euchromatin, or loose DNA that can be easily accessed to make proteins, and it's also easier to sequence because it's not highly repetitive. This particular type of DNA makes up 90% of a human's genome. A genome is the collection of all DNA within an organism. The 15-year estimation was fair. This is going to be a massive endeavor, one that would cost somewhere around $3 billion. And much of the U.S.'s efforts was actually funded by taxpayers. But to understand the project's nearly two-decade-long estimation and multi-billion-dollar price tag, we need to talk more about DNA. DNA, or deoxyribose nucleic acid, is truly something beautiful. It's made up of these compounds called nucleotides, which are sort of like biological Lego blocks. There are only four kinds of these Lego blocks. Adenine, which pairs with thymine, and cytosine, which pairs with guanine. This specific pairing forms that famous double helix. So if you know the sequence of one strand, you can easily figure out the other by using the base pairs of A and T or C and G. Amazingly, just these four nucleotides, A, T, C, and G, are responsible for two important functions, passing down hereditary information and directing protein synthesis. Although humans have mostly the same DNA, to the tune of 99.999%, we each have different unique genomic sequences because lots of Lego blocks or nucleotide combinations can produce the same effect. But it's the stretches of DNA where we are not the same that gives us things like different hair or eye color or predisposes some of us to certain disorders or diseases. Your DNA is a mixture of your parents and contains the blueprints for all the traits and conditions that make you, you. Genes are the stretches of DNA that carry heredity across generations. Genes also tell your body how to make proteins. Proteins are made up of amino acids linked by peptide bonds. Think beads on a string. DNA serves as a blueprint for RNA molecules to actually make the proteins. These include messenger RNA, ribosomal RNA, and transfer RNA. Basically though, DNA is like the foreman at the construction site of your body, while all the different RNA are the builders and construction workers. It really cannot be overstated how important proteins are to our functioning. Proteins are involved in pretty much any biological process you can think of. So when they malfunction or are not produced at all, 
it can have serious consequences. In fact, according to a 2006 paper published by Tapan Shahuri and Sapankar Paul, protein misfolding is likely the root cause of things like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and Huntington's, and those are just the neurodegenerative diseases. Errors in protein structure and function can result from mutations in someone's genes, mutations that may be inherited. When we say that someone has the gene for a disease, what we really mean to say is that they carry the allele for that disease. An allele is a particular version of a gene. Different alleles of the same gene are different in their DNA sequences. Interestingly, sometimes alleles can differ by only a single nucleotide. To better understand this, let's look at the hypothetical gene X. Let's say that gene X has two alleles that are identical, except that allele 1 has an A at a certain position, whereas allele 2 has a C at that same position. This single difference in the DNA may lead to a change in the amino acid sequence that makes up the protein, or as scientists say, it may lead to a mutation in the protein. Now, we're not saying that any mutant proteins are bad by default. In fact, it's these mutated proteins and genes that lead to evolution by giving some organisms an unplanned advantage over others in their environment. However, when looking at diseases that are either inherited or have an inheritable risk, examining these mutations is important to determine whether or not someone could become sick. In a process called genetic testing, by comparing a specific person's nucleotide sequence to the wild type or normal sequence, scientists can determine if these differences are severe enough to warrant further study. But to do that, you need to know what that normal sequence is. And to do that, you'd have to be able to determine the exact order of a person's nucleotide bases, or to sequence their DNA. This is where the Human Genome Project comes into play. Its goal was to sequence the entire human genetic makeup, or the human genome, starting with that euchromatin DNA, that loose DNA. To sequence the genome, scientists used a technique called Sanger sequencing. Nowadays, this method is honestly pretty old school and largely outdated, but back then it was super useful in determining the order of nucleotides and small fragments of DNA. The Human Genome Project, though, really built upon and advanced Sanger sequencing, which essentially spays and neuters nucleotides to stop them from elongating. Sanger sequencing is great for shorter DNA fragments, like 50 base pairs and under. But to do this for the 3.2 billion nucleotides that make up the human genome? Talk about dedication! Despite its scope, scientists were actually moving pretty quickly towards their goal of sequencing all the euchromatin DNA. In two years, they went from having 6% of the human genome sequenced to 90%. By the end of 1999, scientists had fully sequenced chromosome 22, the first time the genetic code of an entire human chromosome had been deciphered. Not even a year later, though, in 2000, was President Bill Clinton joined by Francis Collins, in addition to many other prominent figures. Collins was the leader of the National Center for Human Genome Research and also helped identify the cystic fibrosis gene. He would later serve as the director of the National Institutes of Health, or NIH. So, what was so important then that necessitated senators, ambassadors from four countries, the head of a biotech company, President Bill Clinton and UK Prime Minister Tony Blair all being together in the White House's famous East Room? At that June 26, 2000 press conference, President Clinton announced the completion of the first draft of the human genome.
Today's announcement represents more than just an epoch-making triumph of science and reason. After all, when Galileo discovered he could use the tools of mathematics and mechanics to understand the motion of celestial bodies, he felt, in the words of one eminent researcher, that he had learned the language in which God created the universe. Today, we are learning the language in which God created life. Similarly, the next day, the Daily Mirror ran the headline, It's One Small Piece of Man, One Giant Leap for Mankind. Three years later, scientists were even more over the moon. At last, in April 2003, 13 years after endeavors began in earnest, the Human Genome Project completed their original goal. Euchromatin DNA had finally been sequenced. We now knew 90% of the genetic makeup of humans. In the years since, the Human Genome Project has been updated multiple times, with each new edition releasing more and more sequenced DNA. The complete, unabridged, gapless version was finished in January 2022. The Human Genome Project has furthered research into viruses, like COVID-19, as well as cancer, forensics, evolution, pretty much anything you can think of. In addition to the advancement in so many of these fields, the Human Genome Project also supported the development of the biotech industry, which, by the early 2000s, had become a titanic force. But of course, the biotech sector did not just suddenly spring up out of nowhere. In their 2015 article, The History of Patenting Genetic Material, bioethicists Jacob Shirkoff and Henry Greeley briefly discussed the history of the first biotech company, Genentech. They started by offering 1 million shares at $35 per share, but on the first day of trading, that price quickly jumped to $88. Genentech was among the first examples of the biotech boom, but let's turn our attention to another one. Around the same time the Human Genome Project was underway, there was actually another effort to sequence the human genome. Solera Genomics, a private company, partnered slash competed with the Human Genome Project to be the first to do so. Undoubtedly, though, it was the efforts of both groups that led to the sequencing of the human genome. When both Solera and the Human Genome Project published their findings, their draft sequences were comparable with similar gaps and ambiguities. Solera has since helped sequence the genomes of fruit flies, mosquitoes, and mice, as well as the genome of its founder, Craig Venter. Although Solera's annual revenue once peaked at $121 million in 2002, their stock fell 11% two years earlier. You see, in March 2000, before that June press conference we talked about, the one where they announced the completion of the draft human genome, President Bill Clinton and UK Prime Minister Tony Blair issued a joint statement. It's pretty much what you'd expect of such a monumental event, but there's one especially noteworthy part. Quote, Unencumbered access to the raw human sequence data will promote its use by scientists all over the world. End quote. Consequently, not only did Solera stock drop, but so did the NASDAQ. At the time, the stock market was heavily influenced by the biotech industry, which, following the announcement, lost $50 billion in stock share value. But why? Well, the two world leaders had endorsed unencumbered access to the human genome to advance research. In other words, they had inadvertently thrown private biotech companies who survived off exclusivity into disorder. This exclusivity that allows companies to generate profits needed to further research and development has also been scrutinized. Remember Genentech? Genentech is not only one of the first biotech companies, 
but they were also involved in what Jacob Shirkoff and Henry Greeley call the first gene patent war based on the first human gene patent, CSH1, which is responsible for a hormone called somatotropin that's crucial for fetal growth and development. The CSH1 patent was held by researchers at the University of California, San Francisco. One of the patent's co-inventors had stolen a clone used by other researchers to express the hormone and eventually joined Genentech, which used these clones to develop and sell a therapeutic drug. As you can imagine, the UCSF researchers were none too happy about this, especially considering that the therapeutic had generated billions of dollars in revenue for Genentech. Eventually, after a long and bitter lawsuit, Genentech agreed to pay UCSF and its researchers $200 million, a quarter of which went to build the university's campus. Now, let's consider the genes that are at the center of AMP versus Myriad, BRCA1 and BRCA2, which are written as BRCA. BRCA1 and 2 are known as tumor suppressor genes because when they have certain mutations, they can lead to cancer, specifically breast and ovarian cancer. Why is that? Well, BRCA1 and 2 encode the breast cancer type 1 and type 2 susceptibility proteins, respectively. The proteins are also known as BRCA1 and BRCA2, so they have the same name as the genes they're made by. These two proteins are involved in repairing damaged DNA and destroying cells whose DNA cannot be repaired. Since cancer arises from cells growing out of control, often due to some kind of damaged DNA, losing the BRCA1 and 2 proteins could be devastating. The mutations that alter the function of the BRCA1 and 2 proteins can be inherited as an allele from one of your parents. According to the Centers for Disease Control, 3% of breast cancer cases and 10% of ovarian cancer cases result from mutations in BRCA1 and 2. Having these harmful mutations increases the risk of breast cancer by 4 to 5 times. If you were concerned that you may carry these mutations, especially if you have a family history of breast or ovarian cancer, then you'd most likely go get genetic testing. For about 20 years, that testing was done through Myriad Genetics. Myriad was founded by Mark Skolnick, a geneticist at the University of Utah. Skolnick and his colleagues were the first to publish the sequence to BRCA1 in 1994 using a method he helped develop called Restriction Fragment Length Polymorphism Analysis, or RFLP analysis. Restriction Fragment Length Polymorphism Analysis allows you to determine where exactly a gene lies within a DNA sequence, and it relies on, you guessed it, polymorphisms. These refer to the fact that for each gene, you can have multiple alleles or variations on that gene. This can look like a difference in as little as one nucleotide or as many as millions. To perform RFLP analysis, scientists use a special protein called a restriction enzyme that's laser-focused on cutting a specific sequence of DNA. Like Singer sequencing, RFLP analysis is considered obsolete nowadays. It just takes too many resources to do and a really long time to finish. However, for Mark Skolnick and his team, RFLP analysis was the key to decoding the BRCA1 sequence. Despite this huge achievement, they were not the first to actually identify the gene. That was a team of researchers led by Mary Claire King at UC Berkeley. Through meticulously studying and tracking families with a history of early-onset breast cancer, Mary Claire King and her colleagues worked for 17 years to see if there was a hereditary basis to breast cancer. They made use of a very complex technique called linkage analysis 
which is based on something called genetic linkage. Basically, if two DNA sequences are close together on a chromosome, then they're more likely to be inherited together. Finally, in 1990, using this principle of genetic linkage, King and her colleagues followed their genetic clues to chromosome 17. A year later, King named the gene BRCA1. Now, I know this is sort of confusing, but just stick with me here. Mary Claire King's team discovered the BRCA1 gene on the chromosome, meaning they knew this area contained a stretch of nucleotides linked to breast cancer susceptibility. But Mark Skolnick and Myriad Genetics were the first to actually sequence that stretch and figure out the exact order of nucleotides. Therefore, because Myriad Genetics was the first to sequence BRCA1, they were able to secure a patent on it. Additionally, the first researcher to discover the sequence to BRCA2 was not Myriad-affiliated. That would be Sir Michael Stratton of the Institute of Cancer Research in the United Kingdom. However, Stratton had only published a truncated, incomplete BRCA2 sequence. Myriad was the first to publish the complete version, which allowed the company to also secure a patent on BRCA2. You may be wondering, researchers, universities, and companies like Myriad were patenting the DNA sequence? The order of Lego blocks of A's, T's, C's, and G's? Surely you aren't serious. Well, to quote one of my favorite movies, I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. Though it may seem sort of strange, gene patents were becoming increasingly common by 1995 when Myriad filed theirs. According to the American Medical Association, at one point, 20% of the 30,000 genes in a human, or about 6,000 genes, were patented. For instance, Athena Diagnostics and the Connexin 26 gene, which is linked to deafness, or Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children, the University of Michigan, and the Cystic Fibrosis gene. It's worth noting, though, that these counts that put the number of gene patents in the thousands may be overestimating it by including patents that only related to genes rather than actually claiming them. So in addition to wanting to protect their discoveries, why might researchers and corporations want to patent genes in the first place? Well, as Shurkoff and Greeley write, at a 1996 conference of the International Association of Bioethicists, after the BRCA1-2 sequences had been published, Myriad founder Mark Skolnick hosted a, quote, poorly received talk in which he discussed the great financial potential of testing the BRCA1-2 genes. You may have heard about Myriad's BRCA analysis test after Angelina Jolie wrote an op-ed for the New York Times in 2013, revealing that she underwent BRCA testing as well as a mastectomy. A study from Harvard Medical School actually found that after her announcement, there was a 64% increase in genetic testing for breast cancer. Nearly all of these tests were conducted using Myriad's BRCA analysis test. Because testing BRCA1 and 2 involves looking at a patient's actual DNA sequences for those genes, Myriad had the sole rights to conduct genetic testing on the BRCA genes, which made them millions in profits. And they enforced those sole rights aggressively. Advocates of gene patenting argue that the process protects, encourages, and incentivizes further innovation. Critics insist that it stifles research and compromises patient care. Many also oppose it on moral grounds. Why should a company have the rights to the DNA found in every person? These debates endured, from the first patented gene in 1982, to the 2013 Supreme Court case at the center of this series that changed science forever. Next time, we'll examine AMP versus Myriad by further exploring Myriad Genetics' claims over BRCA1 and 2. 
How did the case against them develop? And how did their gene patents, and others like it, affect research, patience, and profit? Tune in next time to hear the second episode of The Battle Over You, AMP vs. Myriad.